Matched. Written by Ali Kondi. Please don't forget to like this video and subscribe to the channel. You can also help support the channel by checking out my Patreon. The link is down below in the description. Thank you, and happy listening. Chapter 3 I've always wondered what my dreams look like on paper, in numbers. Someone out there knows, but it isn't me. I pull the sleep tags from my skin, taking care not to tug too hard on the one behind my ear. The skin is fragile there, and it always hurts to peel the disc away, especially if a strand or two of hair gets caught under the adhesive on the tag. Glad that my turn is over, I put the equipment back in its box. It's Bram's turn to be tagged tonight. I did not dream of Xander. I don't know why. But I did sleep late, and I'm going to be late for work if I don't hurry. As I walk into the kitchen, carrying my dress from the night before, I see that my mother has already set out the breakfast food delivery. Oatmeal, gray-brown, and expected. We eat for health and performance, not for taste. Holidays and celebrations are exceptions. Since our calories had been moderated all week long, last night at the banquet we could eat everything in front of us without significant impact. Bram grins mischievously at me, still wearing his sleep clothes. So, he says, shoving one last spoonful of oatmeal into his mouth, did you sleep late because you were dreaming about Xander? I don't want him to know how close he is to the truth, that even though I didn't dream of Xander, I wanted to. No, I say. And shouldn't you be worrying about being on time for school? Bram's young enough that he still has school instead of work on Saturdays, and if he doesn't get going, he'll be late. Again. I hope he doesn't get sighted. Bram, my mother says, go get your plain clothes on, please. She'll breathe a huge sigh of relief when he moves on to second school, where the start time is half an hour later. As Bram slouches out of the room, my mother reaches for my dress and holds it up. You looked so beautiful last night. I hate to take this back. We both look at the gown for a moment. I admire the way the fabric catches the light and plays it back, almost like the light and the cloth are both living things. We both sigh at exactly the same time, and my mother laughs. She gives me a kiss on the cheek. They'll send you a little piece of the fabric, remember? She says, and I nod. Each gown is designed with an interior panel that can be cut into pieces one for each girl who wears the dress. The scrap, along with the silver box that held my microcard, will be the mementos of my matching. But still, I will never see this dress, my green dress, again. I knew the moment I saw it that it was the one I wanted. When I made my selection, the woman at the clothing distribution center smiled after she punched the number 73 into the computer. That's the one you were most likely to pick, she said. Your personal data indicated it, and so did general psychology. You've picked things outside of the majority in the past, and girls like their dresses to bring out their eyes. I smiled and watched as she sent her assistant into the back to retrieve the dress. When I tried it on, I saw that she was right. The dress was meant for me. The hemline fell perfectly, the waist curved in exactly the right amount. I turned in front of the mirror, admiring myself. The woman told me, so far, you are the only girl wearing this dress at the match banquet this month. The most popular gown is one of the pink gowns, number 22. Good, I told her. I don't mind standing out a little. Bram reappears in the doorway, plain clothes wrinkled, hair askew. I can almost see the wheels turning in my mother's mind. Is it better to comb his hair and make him late, or send him as he is? 
Bram makes the decision for her. See you tonight, he says, sprinting out the door. He's not going to be fast enough. My mother looks out the window toward the air train stop, where the tracks light up to indicate the approaching train. He might, I say, watching Bram as he breaks another rule, the one about running in public. I can almost hear his footsteps pounding on the sidewalk as he runs down the street, his head lowered, his school pack bumping against his skinny back. Right when he gets to the stop, he slows down. He pats his hair into place and walks casually up the steps toward the train. Hopefully no one else has seen him run. A moment later, the air train pulls away with Bram safely inside. That boy is going to be the end of me. My mother sighs. I should have gotten him up earlier. We all overslept. It was a big night last night. It was, I agree. I have to catch the next city air train. My mother pulls her satchel over her shoulder. What are you doing for your free rec hours tonight? I'm sure Xander and everyone will want to play games at the youth center, I say. We've seen all the showings and the music. I shrug. My mother laughs, completing my sentence. Is for old people like me. And I'm using the last hour to visit grandfather. The officials don't often allow a deviation from the usual free rec options. But on the eve of someone's final banquet, visiting is encouraged and permitted. My mother's eyes soften. He'll love that. Did Papa tell Grandfather about my match? My mother smiles. He planned to stop by on his way to work. Good, I say, because I want Grandfather to know as soon as possible. I know he has been thinking as much about me and my banquet as I've been thinking about him and his. After I hurry and eat my breakfast, I make my train with seconds to spare and sit back. I may not have dreamed about Xander while I slept, but I can daydream about him now. Looking out the window and thinking about how he looked last night in his suit, I watch the burrows slide by on my way into the city. The green has not yet given way to stone and concrete when I notice white flakes drifting through the sky. Everyone else notices them too. Snow? In June? The woman next to me asks. It can't be, a man across the aisle mutters. But look at it, she says. It can't be, the man says again. People twist, turn to the windows looking agitated. Can something wrong be true? Sure enough, little white puffs drift past on their way to the ground. There is something strange about this snow, but I'm not exactly sure what. I find myself holding in a smile as I look at all the worried faces around me. Should I be worried too? Perhaps. But it's so pretty, so unexpected, and for the moment, so unexplainable. The air train comes to a stop. The doors open and a few pieces drift inside. I catch one on my hand, but it does not melt. The mystery of it does, however, when I see the little brown seed at the center of the snow. It's a cottonwood seed, I tell everyone confidently. It's not snow. Of course, the man says, sounding glad to have an explanation. Snow in June would be atypical. Cottonwood seeds are not. But why are there so many? Another woman asks, still worried. In a moment, we have our answer. One of the new passengers sitting down brushes white from his hair and plain clothes. We're tearing out the cottonwood grove along the river, he explains. The society wants to plant some better trees there. Everyone else takes his word for it. They know nothing about trees. They mutter about being glad it isn't a sign of another warming. Thank goodness the society has things under control as usual. But thanks to my mother, 
who can't help talking about her work as a caretaker at the Arboretum, I know that his explanation does make sense. You can't use cottonwood trees for fruit or fuel, and their seeds are a nuisance. They fly far, catch on anything, try to grow everywhere. Weed trees, my mother says. Still, she harbors a particular affinity for them because of the seeds, which are small and brown but cloaked in beauty, in these thin white tendrils of cotton. Little cloudy parachutes to slow their fall, to help them fly, to catch the wind and glide them somewhere they might grow. I look at the seed resting in the palm of my hand. There is still mystery in it after all, in that little brown core. I'm not sure what to do with it, so I tuck it into my pocket next to my tablet container. The almost snow reminds me of a line from a poem we studied this year in language and literacy, stopping by woods on a snowy evening. It is one of my favorites of all the hundred poems, the ones our society chose to keep, back when they decided our culture was too cluttered. They created commissions to choose the hundred best of everything. Hundred songs, hundred paintings, hundred stories, hundred poems. The rest were eliminated. Gone forever. For the best, the society said, and everyone believed because it made sense. How can we appreciate anything fully when overwhelmed with too much? My own great-grandmother was one of the cultural historians who helped select the hundred poems almost seventy years ago. Grandfather has told me the story a thousand times, how his mother had to help decide which poems to keep and which to lose forever. She used to sing him parts of the poems as lullabies. She whispered, sang them, he said, and I tried to remember them after she had gone. After she had gone. Tomorrow my grandfather will go too. As we leave the last of the cottonwood seeds behind, I think about that poem and how much I like it. I like the words deep and sleep and the way they rhyme and repeat. I think to myself that this poem would be a good lullaby if you listened to the rhythm instead of the words. Because if you listened to the words, you wouldn't feel rested. Miles to go before I sleep. It's a numbers sort today, my supervisor Nora tells me. I sigh a little, but Nora doesn't respond. She scans my card and hands it back. She doesn't ask about the match banquet, even though she has to know from my information update that it happened last night. But that's nothing new. Nora barely interacts with me because I'm one of the best sorters. In fact, it's been almost three months since my last error, which was the last time the two of us had a real conversation. Wait, Nora says as I turn toward my station. Your scan card indicates that it's almost time for your formal sorting test. I nod. I've been thinking about this for months, not as much as I thought about my match banquet, but often. Even though some of these number sorts are boring, sorting itself can lead to much more interesting work positions. Perhaps I could be a restoration supervisor like my father. When he was my age, his work activity was information sorting too, and so was grandfather's. And of course there is my great-grandmother, the one who participated in one of the greatest sortings of all when she was on the hundred committee. The people who oversee the matching also get their start in sorting, but I'm not interested in that. I like my stories and information one step removed. I don't want to be in charge of sorting real people. Make sure you're ready, Nora says, but both she and I know that I already am. Yellow light slants through the windows near our stations in the sorting center. I cast a shadow across the other workers' stations as I pass by. No one looks up. I slip into my tiny station which is just wide enough for a table and a chair and a sorting screen.
The thin gray walls rise up on either side of me and I can't see anyone else. We are like the microcards in the research library at second school, each of us neatly tucked into a slot. The government has computers that can do sorts much faster than we can, of course, but we're still important. You never know when technology might fail. That's what happened to the society before ours. Everyone had technology, too much of it, and the consequences were disastrous. Now, we have the basic technology we need, ports, readers, scribes, and our information intake is much more specific. Nutrition specialists don't need to know how to program air trains, for example, and programmers in turn don't need to know how to prepare food. Such specialization keeps people from becoming overwhelmed. We don't need to understand everything. And, as the society reminds us, there's a difference between knowledge and technology. Knowledge doesn't fail us. I slide my scan card and the sort begins. Even though I like word association or picture or sentence sorts the best, I'm good at the number ones too. The screen tells me what patterns I'm supposed to find, and the numbers begin to scroll up on the screen, like little white soldiers on a black field waiting for me to mow them down. I touch each one and begin to sort them out, pulling them aside into different boxes. The tapping of my fingers makes a low, soft sound, almost as silent as snow falling. And I create a storm. The numbers fly into their spots like flakes driven by the wind. Halfway through, the pattern we are looking for changes. The system tracks how soon we notice the changes and how quickly we adapt our sorts. You never know when a change will happen. Two minutes later, the pattern changes again, and once more I catch it on the very first line of numbers. I don't know how, but I always anticipate the shift in pattern before it happens. When I sort, there is only time to think about what I see in front of me. So there, in my little gray space, I don't think about Xander. I don't wish for the feel of the green dress against my skin, or the taste of chocolate cake on my tongue. I don't think of my grandfather eating his last meal tomorrow night at the final banquet. I don't think of snow in June or other things that cannot be, yet somehow are. I don't picture the sun dazzling me or the moon cooling me or the maple tree in our yard turning gold, green, red. I will think of all of those things and more later, but not when I sort. I sort and sort and sort until there is no data left for me. Everything is clear on my screen. I am the one who makes it go blank. When I ride the air train back to Maple Tree Burrow, the cottonwood seeds are gone. I want to tell my mother about them, but when I get home, she and my father and Bram have already left for their leisure hours. A message for me blinks on the port. We're sorry to have missed you, Cassia. It flashes. Have a good night. A beep sounds in the kitchen. My meal has arrived. The foilware container slides through the food delivery slot. I pick it up quickly, in time to hear the sound of the nutrition vehicle trundling along its track behind the houses in the burrow. My dinner steams as I open it up. We must have a new nutrition personnel director. Before, the food was always lukewarm when it arrived. Now it's piping hot. I eat in a hurry, burning my mouth a little, because I know what I want to do with this rare empty time in this almost vacant house. I'm never really alone. The port hums in the background, keeping track, keeping watch. But that's all right. I need it for what I'm going to do. I want to look at the microcard without my parents or Bram glancing over my shoulder. I want to read more about Xander before I see him tonight. When I insert the microcard, 
the humming takes on a more purposeful sound. The port screen brightens, and my heart beats faster in anticipation, even though I know Xander so well. What has the society decided I should know about him? The person I'll spend most of my life with? Do I know everything about him as I think I do? Or is there something I've missed? Cassia Reyes, the society is pleased to present you with your match. I smile as Xander's face appears on the port screen immediately following the recorded message. It's a good picture of him. As always, his smile looks bright and real, his blue eyes kind. I study his face closely, pretending that I've never seen this picture before, that I have only had a glimpse of him once, last night at the banquet. I study the planes of his face, the look of his lips. He is handsome. I'd never dared think that he might be my match, of course. But now that it's happened, I am interested. Intrigued. A little scared about how this might change our friendship, but mostly just happy. I reach up to touch the words, courtship guidelines on the screen. But before I do, Xander's face darkens and then disappears. The port screen beeps and the voice says again, Cassia Reyes, the society is pleased to present you with your match. My heart stops, and I can't believe what I see. A face comes back into view on the port in front of me. It is not Xander. 